From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA. This is Catholic Military Life, a podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And for this edition, it's my great privilege to have as my guest, retired four-star Admiral William Joseph Fallon, a retired U.S. Navy four-star admiral who retired after serving 41 years in the United States Navy. Admiral Fallon, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Taylor. Nice to be back with you. It is great to have you again, sir. And uh, our topic for this podcast is the upcoming pilgrimage for the sea services, uh, which will take place on Sunday, October 1st uh, at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time at uh, the uh, Seton Shrine in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Uh, the, the exact address is 339 South Seton Avenue, Emmitsburg, Maryland, 21727. Uh, Admiral Fallon, how is it that you're involved in the pilgrimage for the sea services. And what is the pilgrimage for the sea services? Well, why don't we start with that, Taylor? The pilgrimage uh, originated uh, back in the mid-1970s when uh, Mother Seton was canonized. And at that time, the chief of Navy chaplains was uh, Monsignor John O'Connor from New York. And uh, he uh, thought that uh, given uh, certain historical aspects of Mother Seton, that it would be a wonderful idea if she became the patroness for the sea services in the United States. And so he went back to the Vatican and uh, petitioned that this would uh, happen. They uh, agreed, and uh, I believe in 1975, not long after her canonization, she was named the patron of the sea services. So uh, then uh, Admiral O'Connor got together with the then chief of naval personnel, uh, Admiral Jim Watkins, and they conceived the idea of an annual pilgrimage uh, to the shrine uh, up in Emmitsburg where uh, St. Elizabeth Ann had, had worked um, in that church and had lived in, in that uh area after founding her, uh, her group of nuns. And so in 1977, the inaugural pilgrimage took place, again arranged under the auspices of, uh, of John O'Connor and, and Jim Watkins. And it's been going on now almost 50 years since then, with a, with a short break, a couple of years. Uh, but uh, Jim Watkins uh, led was the chair of the sponsoring committee for many years. I'd been up there a couple of times while I was still on active duty. And then after I retired, uh, Jim asked me uh, several years later if I would take over for for him as he was uh, beginning to age out. And I agreed to do that. So I've been here for about 10 or 12 years, I guess, uh, kind of in charge of the sponsoring committee, which is a group of uh, retired um, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and uh, merchant marine uh, uh, people who uh, have an affection for Mother Seton and the church and, uh, and come together once a year to sponsor this. So the pilgrimage itself is, uh, takes place uh, once a year, first Sunday of October, at the beautiful Seton Shrine. Um, and you've given the address already. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. It's just an absolutely beautiful church uh, in a wonderful setting. 
And the timing is uh, nice. It's uh, early fall in the mountains. Trees just beginning to turn to beautiful drive, and it happens to be about, about an hour and 15 minutes from Washington and uh, about the same distance down from Philly and, and closer from Baltimore. But at any rate, uh, we have a mass at 3.30 this year. It's going to be celebrated by uh, Bishop Spencer, uh, one of the auxiliary bishops of the military archdiocese. Bishop F. Richard Spencer. And uh, his brother, uh, also a priest, uh, was a Navy chaplain. Uh, Bishop Spencer was, a, was an Army chaplain, so he's got the, got the military background. Uh, he'll be our principal celebrant. So we come together in the, uh, in the basilica up there, uh, Mass at 3.30, and uh, we are typically uh, honored by a group of midshipmen from the United States Naval Academy that came up, that come up every year, um, and they sing in the choir. We also are uh, wonderfully supported by the Knights of Columbus, who uh, add uh, a little bit of pomp and circumstance and splendor to the event. And we're often joined by uh, uh, visiting priests and chaplains that come by to help uh, celebrate the Mass. Uh, following the Mass, uh, the committee uh, sponsors a dinner for anybody that attends uh, the Mass. You're welcome to stay. And we uh, typically have it in the sisters' refectory up there in the convent, and uh, it's uh, all are welcome. So we'll have plenty of plenty of food and drink, and you can leave on a full stomach and head head home after the uh, after the uh, the mass. But it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for uh, people in the sea services to uh, uh, to come and pray uh, for. St. Elizabeth Ann's intercession on their behalf. People, uh, you know, serve around the world, some in very, very difficult circumstances, and uh, it's a chance to uh, thank the good Lord for his protections and, and invoke uh, Mother Seton's patronage to keep an eye on our, on our people and their families. And, of course, when you say our people, we're talking about all seafarers, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, the Merchant Marines and the United States Public Health Service. Correct. Now, um, St. Uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton was the, of course, first-born American saint. Um, she lived from 1774 to 1821, born right here in America. She did spend some time in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the connection between uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who was the founder of the Sisters of Charity, who still reside at the Seton Shrine, and the pilgrimage for the sea services. Well, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, St. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ann, whose husband passed away uh, uh, some years into their marriage, had uh, two sons, um, and uh, both of these sons served in the U.S. Navy. Uh, one uh, joined as a midshipman, uh, William, uh, early on, and uh, served, I think, for about 17 years in various places uh, around the world, beginning in the early uh, 1800s, uh, 19th century. And then his younger brother, Richard, uh, also uh, joined the Navy. It was actually after Mother Seton had, had passed away. But uh, she uh, demonstrated... Uh, a very strong uh, love for her her children, and particularly the son William that was at sea most of the time um, after she founded the uh, the sisters uh, up there in Emmitsburg. Uh, she would correspond with him regularly and uh, and pleaded with God to uh, 
keep an eye on them, keep them safe in his sea, seafaring days. So um, I think you, you couldn't ask for uh, something more appropriate uh, than to have uh, uh, St. Elizabeth Ann as the, as the patron of sea services since she had her two, uh, her two children uh, uh, both spent their, uh, their, their time. And in fact, the younger son, Richard, uh, died on, uh, while he was in the service overseas. Caught a a disease and and passed away. So, a very strong connection to the sea services. And you, with your 41 years' experience as a fighter pilot, a Navy fighter pilot, um, and and many, many other assignments uh, uh, as you rose through the ranks to become a four star admiral, you know firsthand that there is a, a, a special connection with the spiritual life and the life of a seafarer. For example, even now, on the U.S. Navy warships, what at ten o'clock there's a, a prayer uh, yep. still uh, every night. Um, tell me a little more about that, if you could. The the spirituality of being a seafarer. I mean, you're out there on the on the great ocean at the mercy of Mother Nature. <laughs> you, I guess, uh, big big question, uh, Taylor, and and many faceted. So. Uh, I found in my experience that uh, when you get out in the middle of the ocean, it's uh, it's very different. You're you're out there on the sea. You're uh, in my in my experience uh, on a ship or in an airplane, but you're basically alone. You're either with your shipmates or you're uh, in in the air uh, by yourself, and you you get to see this uh, vast uh, space that uh, stretches to the limits of your vision. So there's some fascinating uh, things uh, to be seen uh, in the ocean and in skies, uh, in places away from the land. So the ocean is ever-changing, whether it's the color of the surface, the waves, in my experience, and the the vast multitude of sea life that you get get a chance to see. But um, you're left with uh, wonderment, I think, is probably the, the term. Uh, how did this all come about? And and you, in my experience, uh, have a feeling that it's a really big uh, universe, and we're really small individual people. And uh, c- clearly, uh, God's wisdom and power are on display um, when we're out in this this environment. Uh, in the air, um, even even more special in my experience. And get up in the sky, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, well above the clouds, and at night, you, you, the number of stars and planets and things are just uh, amazing. I mean, it becomes so bright in some places that it's like somebody put a spotlight on, and it's the middle of the night with no moon, but have all these stars. So uh, you're very close to nature, and uh, and you get a chance to see the awe-inspiring uh, reality of our creation. Uh, the Navy has uh, had a long tradition of uh, affinity for the good Lord, and as you indicated uh, correctly, uh, every evening the last thing before uh, sailors are invited to turn in for the night, those that are not on watch, um, there will be the evening prayer. And uh, the chaplain aboard the ship will will lead that prayer and remind people that uh, we're in the care of the good Lord and, and ask for his uh, mercy and watchfulness and on the bigger ships uh, sometimes you have 
more than one chaplain of uh, different faiths, and they, they all rotate around and, and say whatever whatever the prayer is according to their tradition. But So I think it's very important, and through my service, I've been involved in uh, probably too many wars um, in many places in the world, and, and often uh, when times are difficult and challenging for our people, um, they, they really, really benefit from the presence of a chaplain who can uh, uh, work with them to help them pray and get through the challenges that, uh, that ensue from time to time. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to see things and experience things that uh, not everyone in the world gets to see. And it's a, sometimes when you're involved in, uh, in uh, conflicts and other things when you really, really need some help. Um, it's uh, it's wonderful to uh, be able to uh, have uh, chaplains in our presence, and there aren't enough of them. I could make a make an aside now, as you well know here at the Archdiocese, uh, the number of of Catholic priests is uh, is down, and certainly the number of chaplains is down, and we really could use uh, use more. And and uh, maybe uh, through this uh, pilgrimage that we do every year, we certainly ask uh, for Mother Seton's intercession to uh, inspire more uh, young men to join the priesthood. And, and I think it's paying off because, uh, as I've observed over the last half dozen or so years, we're, we seem to be getting uh, uh, a growing number of young people that have uh, opted to join the priesthood and even more importantly uh, for us uh, to uh, offer to come and, and join the military as, as chaplains. And right now we have 39 in the pipeline to become military chaplains That's this year alone. And this follows year after year going back, as you mentioned, 10 years or more, actually. Uh, right before the pandemic, we'd uh, reached a record level of 47 men in the program, and some of those have gone on to become ordained and are in the process of becoming chaplains. So the the outlook is is promising. Yeah, that's under, terrific. Under yeah. Archbishop Brolio, and you're you're certainly correct. We, uh, uh, the Archbishop and uh, the vocations office here are uh, uh, working <clears throat> intensely to uh, to overcome that chronic shortage of chaplains. Now, um, Admiral Fallon, Admiral Bill Fallon, you are a lifelong Catholic. You're a graduate of Villanova University. Uh, during your 41 years uh, in the Navy, uh, during which time you rose up the ranks to the to the very top, you were the first um, commander of Central Command, CENTCOM, down there in Tampa, Florida, from the Navy. Um, and all the other awards that you received, uh, more than I can mention here. Uh, and all this experience that you had, uh, share with me the, the role that chaplains played uh, in your life as, as, a, um, as a Navy man, as an officer. Uh, the, t- t- what, what was that like? You know, were the chaplains important to you in, in your career as a Navy man? Well, of course, very important because uh, the spiritual life is part of life, and, uh, and to uh, uh, to be able to uh, have uh, access to the sacraments, to uh, uh, the things that we take kind of take for granted often when we're uh, back here ashore, um, not necessarily so. At sea, because it's so difficult, ships spread all over the ocean, around the world, and 
and we uh, really, uh, uh, again, would love to see more chaplains. When I was younger, uh, my early days of service, there were uh, far more chaplains to the point where most every large ship in the Navy had had a priest on board, and uh, that number has dwindled over the years. And uh, I'll highlight one event that occurred. Uh, my son is uh, still in the Navy, uh, serving on active duty, and he's uh, an aviator. And um, a number of years ago, he was about to deploy uh, to the combat zone in the Middle East. And we were speaking just before he left, and he, he happened to mention to me, Dad, you know, there's no, no priest on this ship. And I was, uh, I was stunned. I was really taken aback because he was on a, a fleet aircraft carrier with almost 6,000 men and women and, and another uh, dozen ships with them and to, to not have a priest. So I was uh, stunned. I immediately picked up the phone and called the then head chief of the Navy, who happened to be Catholic, and said, are you aware that? And he wasn't. And so uh, things moved pretty quickly. And by the time his ship got to Hawaii, they had a, they had a priest on board. They were able to get somebody from him. Uh, to pull out of another another command, but it, it uh, I think that might have been the low spot, and that was probably about 20 years ago, when uh, numbers are, are really uh, really small. So uh, I think it's uh, it's really important that we have the numbers because our people, um, a lot of them, as you're well aware, we've had uh, a lot of people falling away from the church. And so there's uh, there's not a, there are not as many uh, people that are religiously inclined, I think, in the Navy, reflective of the rest of society. Uh, but we have some wonderfully strong Catholics out there, and uh, and they need the ministry of, of our priests. And so it's really important. And I think it, it's also uh, as we discuss the uh, the chaplains and the work that the archdiocese here is doing. I think it's, it's very interesting to note that uh, a good number of these young men who have uh, uh, discerned vocation and are serving as priests now and coming into the service uh, come from military backgrounds. Uh, they, they served in the service in, in some position, Navy or Army or Air Force, and uh, across different ranks, different positions, uh, very uh, wide background. Uh, but they've, uh, I think it's very interesting that uh, a significant number of our young priests now, priest candidates, are coming from the, the ranks of uh, former military people. Well, the church studies show that the military is one of the, if not the largest source of new vocations uh, among priests in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, the figures are anywhere from four every year, four to 10% uh, come from directly from the military and another anywhere from eight to 20% come from military families. Mm -hmm. So the, the military, uh, has a, uh, obviously by the, the stats, uh, has a strong influence on, uh, the young men discerning a call to priesthood. You're listening to Catholic Military Life, a podcast of the Archdiocese for the Military Services. And our guest for this edition is retired four-star Admiral William J. Fallon. And we are talking about the October 1st pilgrimage for the sea services, uh, which uh, is coming up on Sunday, October 1st, uh, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 
at the Seton Shrine in Emmitsburg, Maryland, 339 South Seton Avenue, Emmitsburg, Maryland, 21727. And Admiral Fallon, uh, your remarkable career, first of all, let me interrupt and say thank you, sir, for your service, your 41 years in the United States Navy. Uh, you were, were witnessed all kinds of uh, uh, action, military action during your 41 years, the past almost half century. Uh, I'd like to hone in, though, on, on one uh, part of your experience and ask you if you could share a little bit about it, and that was... You were at the Pentagon uh, on 9-11, mm-hmm. um, uh, very close to where the plane struck the Pentagon that day. Share with us, please, your story. What is your recollection of that horrible day and, and how you became aware that the plane had struck, first of all, that planes were you know, launching an attack against America, but that one of those planes had hit just down the hall from where you were? Yeah, it was a very, uh, very traumatic day uh, for the whole country and the world. Um, it began uh, pretty innocuously. I had gone out for a for an early morning trot, and I had cleaned up and was uh, driving across the uh, across the bridge, uh, the Memorial Bridge, to get get to my office in the Pentagon. And I looked up and noted how beautifully clear and cool the day was. So this was early September and. I'd been a, a weather freak as a young young man and paid a lot a lot of attention to the weather. And then as an I'm aviator, sure being a pilot. of course, very attuned to it. Uh, but I noted that, that this was the first uh, cool day of the fall, and uh, one of those crisp, clear. Um, you, you know how it how it is, and it was that day, the first time, and I thought, wow, beautiful day. Which I didn't, didn't have to spend the day in the Pentagon, but there I go. So we went in, and as it turns out, I, I was in a meeting. Uh, I was the vice chief of the Navy, um, the number two uh, serving officer, and I was in a meeting with the boss, uh, the CNO, Admiral Vern Clark, and we uh, were in a pretty intense discussion at, at the time. Of, um, and uh, his television was on. It was on his wall behind him. There was no sound on it, but the video uh, was on, and no, I, there was a third person in the meeting, and he kept glancing up at the screen and kind of a little distracting and, uh, you know, what's going on? And he, he blurted out, something's happened. He said, looks like there's been a uh, a crash into a building. And I, I turned around and looked at it and turned the volume up, the audio, and uh, they're describing this horrible accident when an airplane flew into the World Trade Center, which I recognized immediately. And I I said, I think out loud, that was no accident. It's it's crystal clear all the way up and down the East Coast. <clears throat> that was certainly not an accident. And then shortly thereafter, the second plane hit in front of our eyes, and uh, uh, we knew there was trouble. So uh, we called down. The, the Navy had a command center. Um, actually had just been rebuilt. At that time, this is now going back 20-some years, the Pentagon was undergoing, I think it's really first... Um, reconstruction since it was originally put up in uh, 1941 and they were systemically going through and doing a section at a time and it turns out that they had just renovated this this section and our people had moved into a brand new command center down on the ground floor and so I called down there and to ask uh, the operations folks what was happening and they indicated some airplanes have been hijacked 
and uh, they suspected there were still several in the air somewhere, and they were trying to, uh, authorities were trying to get a grip on this. Uh, very soon thereafter, I felt a tremendous uh, explosion and thud. The whole building shook, and I knew instantly what it was. And it turns out that the airplane had actually uh, hit uh, right dead center into our command center on the first floor. Which is where your office was. No, I was up, I was up uh, on the fourth floor. Uh, but and down the, the hall a little bit in the but, same general area. Yeah. So after the after the explosion, uh, that section, the whole section of the Pentagon was pretty well destroyed, and the fire spread down, and, and my office was destroyed later later on in the fire. But initially, the uh, the initial blast was down lower, and the first couple of floors took the took the hit. So we we evacuated. We decided to go to uh, split up and go to different places. I went down and. Uh, Saw where the where the hit was. Uh, we had some fantastically uh, courageous uh, acts uh, that occurred during those first couple of hours to save people that were injured and wounded. For example, uh, we had uh, some interesting stories. So one of the life saving measures, and I'll, I can talk about this because uh, an old friend of mine, a shipmate, had to retire from the Navy. He was uh, working as a civilian contractor back in the Pentagon. And was down in the command center uh, when this uh, uh, the airplane hit it. And uh, certainly after the explosion, some of our people rushed down to see if they could help with injured and wounded, and, and they found uh, uh, utter destruction. But they, they heard a moan, and they looked, and they found uh, a desk that was filled with rubble. Uh, parts of the walls and the uh, building had collapsed on it. They heard a moan underneath it, and they looked, and they found uh, this this friend of mine, uh, Jerry, had been trapped under his desk, and he was semi-conscious. So two of our, our people, uh, one was a doctor, a uh, medical doctor, uh, and the other was a SEAL, a uh, pretty, pretty strong lad, and they managed to, by the way, the place is on fire. The fire is coming. The fuel was burning. Uh, it's choking smoke. It's uh, pretty horrific conditions, very hot from the fire, and they... They managed to get under the seal somehow, um, got on his back and pushed with his legs the desk up a couple of inches, and the doc was able to pull pull my friend Jerry out of there, and they, they got him to safety, and he lived. I saw him in the hospital the next day. Um, there were quite a number of stories like that uh, where people helped others to escape, and another one was a, was a meeting going on in the fifth floor. There were five stories in the Pentagon, and it was just above my office. And uh, the lights went out, of course, instantly, and it's very dark up there, and not no windows, and so it was pitch black, and uh, smoke is immediately filling the place, and it's, of course, going up to the ceiling and the top floor first. And I think there were 25 or 30 people in this meeting, and there were two officers that used their heads immediately and said, okay, everybody on the floor, and uh, knowing from the shipboard routine, you you get as low as you can to get out of the smoke, and they, they formed a human chain, one in the front, one in the back, and they crawled on their bellies and they had everybody grab a hold of the leg in front, and they got these people, all of them, out of the building, uh, got down the hall to a place where they could breathe and, and they escaped. So there, there are lots of, uh, lots of stories uh, of people that uh, survived, but there are many, many that didn't. So 42 of our Navy staff perished that day, and... Uh, hundreds of others and thousands when you count in the World Trade Center losses and the uh, Pennsylvania loss. So it was a very tragic day and one that'll 
uh, be in my mind, uh, certainly for the rest of my life. But I, I witnessed some fantastic uh, service of uh, people on behalf of others. And uh, at any rate, we uh, we got through that, and uh, with uh, God's help, we'll get through others. And that's one of the reasons we go up to the, this annual pilgrimage to thank Mother Seton for her intercessions and continue to ask the Lord to keep an eye on our, our men and women that serve around the world with the sea services. And one of the other persons who was present that day at the Pentagon on 9-11 was Auxiliary Bishop F. Richard Spencer, um, who was the Episcopal Vicar for the Eastern United States for the Archdiocese for the Military Services. And he will be the uh, principal celebrant and homilist at the uh, Pilgrimage for the Sea Services on uh, October 1st. October 1st at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to it, and we invite everybody, uh, anybody that could be in the area, uh, come on up. I think you'll uh, you'll get a lot out of it spiritually, and uh, again, you'll leave on a full stomach for sure. <laughs> and the address, once again, 339 South Seton Avenue, Emmitsburg, Maryland, 21727. Uh, and for more information, you can go to Seton Shrine, S-E-T-O-N, S-H-R-I-N-E dot O-R-G. Retired four-star Admiral William J. Fallon, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Taylor.